Um, some books, some books arrive almost full grown, and, and you, you, you can see the beginning, middle, and the end, the sort of the, the minute you, you think of the idea. Others are born in profound darkness and ignorance, and this book was of the latter variety. Uh, when my friend and colleague Dick Victory, who was going to be here today too but could not make it, uh, first suggested back in the late eight, 1980s that I write a biography of Johnny Appleseed, what I knew about the subject was exactly what Walt Disney Studio had served up four decades earlier. And frankly, I thought Dick was nuts for even raising the subject. Biographical subjects need texture and depth, nuance, conflict, and context. And Johnny Appleseed, at least the celluloid version, a little run of a guy with a mush pan hat who bounced around the countryside planting seeds with his guardian angel and twittering bluebirds overhead, was about as one-dimensional as the subject could be. Truth told, I'm not sure I even realized back then that there was any historical antecedent for Johnny Appleseed. Uh, what was I going to write about when Dick mentioned it? And, and Johnny's blessings three, love and faith in an apple tree. Well, perhaps but what was, what was, where was chapter two going to begin and end? I couldn't figure out that book. But I did persevere, and as I did, finally a story began to emerge. I learned, for example, that John Chapman, the real Johnny Appleseed, had left his home in southern Massachusetts with his half-brother Nathaniel, probably in the fall of 1796, walked across the Berkshires and down the Susquehanna Valley, trekked over the Alleghenies in the dead of that winter, and fetched up in northwest Pennsylvania early the next year. I slowly began to see, too, that there was a vast discrepancy between Chapman and Appleseed, the man and the myth. Ohio historian Robert Price had tackled that subject masterfully a half-century earlier, but I think I've been able to add to the story. What's more, the need is far greater now, and that's in large part the legacy of how completely the Disney cartoon version of Johnny's life has wiped John Chapman out of American memory. Thanks to another friend, the pollster John Zogby, I was able to do some surveying for this book. Turns out I've been in good company. Only about 58% of adult Americans thought that Johnny Appleseed had ever existed. Fewer than one in four Americans could identify the right half century in which he'd done his planning, and also fewer than one in four could name what part of the country he'd spent most of his adult life in. I also did some informal asking around uh, among very well-educated friends. Who is John Chapman, I'd say? My favorite answer, oh, he's the guy that murdered John Lennon. Nope, <laughs> that was Mark David Chapman. <clears throat> in the end, I concluded, and I say this in the book, that Johnny Appleseed might be the best-known American about whom no, most people know almost nothing real at all. There was also the sheer mystery of it all. Thanks to a whole host of researchers, we have these tantalizing hints of John Chapman. We know where and when he was born. We know more or less where and when he died, although a case can certainly be made that whoever is buried in the Chapman Appleseed gravesite in Fort Wayne, Indiana, is not John Chapman. We have promissory notes and apple orders in his hand. We even have a series of wonderful Trading Post ledgers and, uh, trading, trading, <laughs> trading Post ledger entries from Warren, Pennsylvania, beginning in February 1797, that show Chapman purchasing a small auger, then a wheel of cheese, and two small histories. But histories of what? British royalty, ancient Greece, or Rome? Wouldn't it be fascinating to know the answer to that? Trying to penetrate that mystery made writing the book almost irresistible to me, as did, let's be honest, the sheer weirdness of its principal character. <laughs> The uh, mid-19th century chronicler A. Banning Norton called Chapman, quote, the oddest character in all our history, and he was there certainly every bit of that. 
Some people thought he'd been kicked in the head by a horse not long after he started pushing into Ohio in the early 1800s, very early 1800s. Another account traces his uh, many oddities to a near-death bout with typhus in his mid-30s. All we can know for certain is that this was a singular man in the extreme. I write in my book that Chapman had, quote, the eye of a speculator, the heart of a philanthropist, the courage of a frontiersman, and the wandering instincts of a Bedouin nomad. In fact, he had an almost self-canceling nature. He wanted land but could never settle down on it. He ran a far-flung nursery business and worked as hard as it as anyone could. And then he gave away half his stock and a fair percentage of his profits. But here's the larger point. Early 19th century Ohio was filled with characters, pioneers who built homes inside trees, famous brawlers, legendary boozers, a rogues gallery of complete eccentrics. And what really struck me was that even among all these people, Chapman's eccentricity stood out as if he'd been painted neon purple. Everyone knew him. Everyone realized what a unique person even crackpotty was. And yet he seems to have been among the most beloved people on the frontier. Somewhere in here, too, the writer Michael Pollan and his book, The Botany of Desire, intruded into my considerations. Pollan's thesis, simply put, is that Johnny Appleseed's great popularity on the frontier had less to do with the healthful properties of the apple than with its inebriating ones. In fact, there's plenty of corroborating evidence for this view. Life on the Ohio frontier in the early decades of the 19th century was lived pretty much in an alcoholic haze. One estimate holds that the average Ohio frontiers person, man and woman over the age of 15, was consuming almost four ounces of liquor daily, uh, 10 and a half ounces of hard cider, and a few gulps of wine. And remember, that's the average of both sexes and of all adult ages. Who wouldn't love an apple man under those circumstances, especially when the available water supply was so suspect? And who would care if the seedlings he sold were far more likely to produce a sour little pip of an apple, and they were, than the glowing red, ro rosy red apples we dream of today. These apples were headed for the fermentation crock, not into a Waldorf salad. That line in explor of exploration, in turn, got me to other contextual issues, and that's when the story really deepened for me. How westward expansion had become dammed up at the Ohio River. The fact that the Northwest Territory was a huge real estate event waiting to happen when John Chapman arrived at its eastern edge at the end of the 18th century. The way the Second Great Awakening swept over all this with camp meetings that drew 10 and 20,000 people and often involved as many as two dozen preachers from an ever splintering coalition, I'm sorry, from a rainbow coalition of ever splintering Christian denominations. I shouldn't try to say all that in one breath, and I apologize. John Chapman lived an often lonely life deep in the woods. He never married, had no children, but he was also as sociable as a fundamental loner could be. And he was an integral part of all these forces that were swirling around him as nurseryman, real estate speculator, and evangelist. And in the off-year election of 1806, when settlers in and around Owl Creek, today's Mount Vernon, Ohio, got to vote for the first time, John Chapman was among the 15 eligible males who wandered out of the woods to cast their vote. What a triumph that was for frontier democracy. For its part, the Second Great Awakening also led me to another fascinating character, almost, also almost lost to modern memory, Emanuel Swedenborg, the Swedish scientist and mystic who was undeniably the transforming muse of John Chapman's life. I could go on for hours about Swedenborg. A few critics have suggested I do go on for hours about Swedenborg, but it's hard not to. Swedenborg was admired throughout Europe. He had a da Vinci-like intellect that ranged far and wide over a multitude of subjects, 
before he settled on the one topic that would consume the last 30 years of his life, God, the nature of the spirit world, and the very thin veil that separates them from the, from we mortals from that world. Here's Swedenborg's own account of his aha moment. He was having dinner by himself late in the evening in a London chop house, I think it's 1845, when the room suddenly went dark and the floor began writhing with snakes. Swedenborg writes that he looked off in a corner of the room and he saw an old man bathed there in light. And the old man offered him four words of stern advice. Don't eat so much. <laughs> then he disappeared as the room returned, as the room returned to normal. <laughs> Later that night, the same man reappeared to Swedenborg in his dreams, identified himself as God, and began revealing through his angel emissaries the hidden truths of the Bible, its secret codex. Who could resist a story like that? Especially when one suspects, as I do, that those same angel messengers were in continual communication with John Chapman as well. But that's what happened time and again in the course of writing this book. Something unique was waiting around every corner. And that gets me to the mythic character, Johnny Appleseed himself, and to the final mystery about John Chapman. Although don't get too excited because the final stretches out for a little ways here. The book is subtitled The Man, the Myth, the American Story because I think and I hope I adequately show that the myth of Johnny Appleseed keeps getting reinvented generation by generation. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, he was a symbol of American innocence, a time before civil war had ravaged the land, before Indians had been driven onto dismal reservations and westward expansion had swept away the supposed Eden this country once had been. Two decades later, after the Women's Christian Temperance Union had laid siege to hard cider, Johnny reemerged as the spokesman for the invigorating properties, not the intoxicating one, of America's favorite fruit. Suddenly, it wasn't a daily bottle, but an apple a day that kept the doctor away. In the mid-1900s, the Disney studio turned Johnny into a sermon on brotherly love and unselfishness. Advertisements in the 1950s and 60s praised his financial shrewdness, oddly enough since his real finances were largely a mess. By the mid-1970s, so-called Johnny Apple seeds of pot were blithely traipsing across the countryside, sowing cannabis seeds in expectation of a new utopia of the stoned. In fact, the phrase Johnny Appleseed of pot will still get you something like 10,000 hits on Google. You could also make a case, and I do in the book, that Johnny Appleseed is the patron saint of American weirdness, a benign version of the same iconoclastic national bent that has given us Ted Kaczynski, the infamous Unabomber, and a whole host of other neurotics and quasi, not always so quasi psychotics, hold up just beyond the edge of civilization. Certainly, too, Johnny is and has been since well before Walt Disney got a hold of him, something like American's patron saint of misinformation. Even in Chapman's own lifetime, the facts about him always had a slippery quality. Uh, with his death, his story exploded in a hundred different directions. Someone claimed to have seen Johnny Appleseed at the Battle of Lookout Mountain in November 1863, nearly two decades after his death. Other stories have him planting apple seeds as far west as uh, Oregon and fathering a child in Missouri by an Indian wife when there's no evidence, not a bit of evidence, that he ever got to or anywhere near the Mississippi River. And there's considerable evidence that he was saving himself procreationally for two virgins in the afterlife. It wasn't until the mid-1930s that we even knew for certain where and when John Chapman had been born. Leominster, Massachusetts, for the record, on September 26, 1774. Even today, Internet sources still routinely, routinely have him dying in March of 1847, when his actual obituary from the March 22, 1845 edition of the Fort Wayne Sentinel is sitting in plain sight for anyone to see. And so this constant mutation and reinvention 
and patron sainthood continues into our own time and our distinctly modern interest in scaling back, going local, and preserving and conserving this wonderful creation we have been handed. Two centuries before there was a simplicity movement, John Chapman had created a lifestyle that was simplicity itself, a level of consumption that would drive the national economy back to a barter system if it were widely practiced. Johnny didn't, simply, didn't merely live lightly in the land, he barely touched it even though he walked it constantly. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where you ought to be, the beautiful old shaker hymn goes. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, it will be in the valley of love and delight. Could there be a better 42-word summary of John Chapman's life? Long before all but a handful of people realized what a fragile creation this earth is, Jack Chapman and Appleseed were there too, coddling nature as if she were a newborn baby. And that finally might be the greatest gift of both. John Chapman had scripture urging him on, not only the Bible, but Swedenborg. But however it came to be, by God's hand, there is nothing more than a cosmic accident. And by whatever label one comes to the challenge, creation care, evangelical environmentalism, secular green, planetary survivalist, this whirling globe of ours does need someone to show us how to love it better. As he always was in life, Johnny Appleseed is waiting out there even now at that razor-thin line between present and future, man and myth, the real and the imagined, ready to lead the way. A lot of factors propelled Chapman into Appleseed, the man under the myth. His ardent evangelizing, the natural tendency to elaborate in a good story, the times, the fact that so few threads held the actual man to the real world. But I also think that John Chapman himself played a central role in the transformation. He liked to tell stories about himself, about his hairbreadth escapes and amazing feats of stamina. In a sense, he was his own wandering minstrel. But while he talked about what I talked a lot about many subjects, especially for an essential loner, the one thing John Chapman almost never talked about were the actual details of his life. He was well known in Fort Wayne when he died there in March of 1845. He had been living in and around the place for more than a decade by then, and that obituary I mentioned earlier runs to 300-plus very laudatory words. But as to how old he might have been, the obituary writer, obituary writer clearly had no clue, and no clue to where he had been born or where he had lived before coming to Indiana, except a vague sense that it was somewhere in Ohio. That's how it was all the way along with John Chapman. People recalled his heroic feats, a marathon-like run through the, forest, the night forest to one of Indian raiders. They remembered legendary acts of kindness, rescuing abused horses, giving his few bits of clothing away to pioneers, poorer, even, even worse off than he was. They knew him as an animal whisperer, a white medicine man, a virtual saint, a John the Baptist of the American wilderness. But about the essential man, they knew almost nothing. It's as if John Chapman had been rehearsing for the part of Johnny Appleseed all along. And now, if I like, if I if I might, I'd like if I like, if I might, I'd like to read the short epilogue with which I close the book, and I promise it won't spoil the story. Okay, take one second to find it. Uh, it's at the end. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Not quite at the end. There are long notes to this thing. Okay. It's titled "My Johnny: The Epilogue." A close friend, a lawyer with a Sufi's heart, has a vision of John Chapman building his bramble enclosures planting his seeds, then twirling Sufi-like the whole night long in rapturous concord with whatever he conceived of as the universal divine. I can see that. Chapman, Appleseed, whatever you call him, might have out Swedenborg, Swedenborg. God talked to him through every tree, every leaf, every rock, every beast, great and small, every atom of creation. How could he not twirl in joy? Johnny's famous loneliness might not have been so lonely after all. 
As William Dean Howells uh, once wrote, quote, uh, if his belief were tr it was true, and we are in this world surrounded by spirits, evil or good, which our evil or good behavior invites to be of our company, then this harmless, loving, uncouth, half-crazy man walked daily with the angels of God. I can also see Henry David Thoreau and Chapman, two children of New England, living deliberately in nature. Indeed, at the very moment John Chapman lay dying in William Worth's cabin in Fort Wayne, Thoreau was digging the foundation for his celebrated cabin at Walden. But for all his intellectual dependence, Thoreau never cut the lifeline. Walden was within easy walking distance of the world he had always known. Even as he was rhapsodizing on life in the woods, Thoreau was still carrying laundry home for his mother to do. Not so Chapman. From his early 20s on, maybe before, he had no tether left. In an article for the December 1979 American Heritage magazine, Edward Hoagland suggested that if uh, Chapman had left a diary behind, he might today be compared to John James Audubon or George Catlin, the great Indian portraitist. I like that. Certainly his diary would not have been what Thoreau's writings were, a relentless critique of the Industrial Revolution. Chapman lived his critique. The nature he loved and gave himself over to vibrated through his entire being. Like Walt Whitman, Chapman sang the body electric. Years ago, I spent a long night with the Washington, D.C. emergency psychiatric response team, heroic men and women tending to the certifiably insane who had been deinstitutionalized from area hospitals. Most of those they treated that night were living in the city parks, often short walks from the Capitol or the White House, or in fact from where we're sitting right now. These were women convinced they were men who had been castrated by demons, men essentially baying at the moon. One man told me that when he walked down the street and saw the stars overhead, he was convinced each star was part of an intergalactic space fleet that was looking to him for direction. If I turn right, they turn right, he told me. If I turn left, they go left. What if I turn the wrong way? We found him paralyzed in the middle of an intersection. The sky was full of stars. I can't help but recall those people when I think of Johnny Appleseed. They were dressed roughly the same, in odd bits of cast-off clothing, sometimes with talismanic meaning. They smelled horribly, as John Chapman almost uh, must have. Voices exploded in their heads. Their brains were on fire. Occasionally, their eyes almost glowed as they talked, as his were said to. By our modern definitions, John Chapman almost certainly was insane. As the old adage goes, if you talk to God, it's prayer. If God talks to you, it's schizophrenia. I think, too, of the woods that surround the house where I've written much of this book, of how light shines through the trees, of what a simple joy it is to turn away from these words and walk among the black walnuts and locusts and hawthorns that wait beyond my windows beckoning me to join them. There is a pleasure in the pathless woods, Lord Byron wrote in Child Harold. There is society where none intrudes. And so it surely was for John Chapman to go easy in this busy world, to walk those pathless woods and feel the dappled sunlight on your skin, to shine and be simple, that's Johnny Appleseed to me. And I thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you. We have plenty of time for questions and discussion, and I'll yeah. invite Harvard to sit down if he wants to. It's very casual, so. so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'll stand for a while if the. Uh, I visited virtually every place in, uh, in Ohio and Indiana, and thank you very much for doing that, <laughs> holding that up. Uh, I'm a Pennsylvanian, so I sort of knew the route across the... Uh, but it, it's really interesting when you, you know, I traveled across the, 
you're always guessing at the route he took. There's no way to tell. The logical route, as it's marked on there, was to go from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, where he was then living, across the Berkshires, across the, the Hudson at uh, Catskill, I think the village of Catskill, Oneana, down the uh, Susquehanna River Valley, and across, uh, and across the mountains, roughly along the lines of today's Pennsylvania Turnpike. And you do that, you know, you drive, I've driven that road many a time, and I never thought about it. When you stop and get out and look, you know, and you think before they dynamited all these ridges and everything to make, it's, uh, it's, it was wonderful. And then you get to Ohio, and you realize that Ohio and Pennsylvania are geologically exactly the same, western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio, and, the, and so I sort of knew that territory. Um, but yeah, I tried to get a feel for it, I tried to understand it, and I also spent a lot of time in little county historical societies out there. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're wonderful resources. I happen to be president of a historical, a little historical society in Clark County, Virginia, but they're wonderful resources. People working to preserve these documents. And they're also, Google's now has put on, has digitized these county histories. Every county produced at least one history between 1850 and 1880, 1890. And they're all digitized. They're all sitting there. They're all searchable. It's an amazing resource. And if you find you want it, you hit a button, and for 15 bucks, it shows up at your door five days later. I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking what they've done. With I thought I was going to spend most of this uh, months at the Library of Congress, you know, depositing my little slips and waiting the mandatory 45 minutes, which stretches out to an hour and a half or two hours. <laughs> I could see my life drifting away. And the uh, love of the whole didn't have to. So, anyone else with a question? Please. Thank you. Yeah, Larry. Was he literate, and did he leave writing behind? He was. He was definitely literate. He, I mean, he read Swedenborg. Swedenborg is not an easy read. Swedenborg's an interesting person. Uh, he, he was a mystic, but before that he'd been a scientist. And so he, he, he approached mysticism and he approached the emissary angels talking to him with, like with a bench scientist's mind and wrote it all down. I should have the number in front of him, but like 52 volumes he left behind. I don't think he read all those, uh, but they probably Heaven and Hell and a couple of others he did. And he would, he ran a, basically he ran a, he ran a lending library. Um, he, would, he would take these books and he'd rip them apart chapter by chapter. He'd leave one chapter at this cabin, the next chapter at this cabin. Then when he passed by again, he'd grab them and you know, move them on to the next cabin. What pioneers made of this man, I have no idea, but he was company, uh, what they made of Swedenborg. So he was literate. There, his, he, there are apple orders, promissory notes in his hand, but almost nothing else. Um, he had a good hand, you know. He said he signed. He was he signed a couple of petitions for this or that, or having to do with the church. Um, but I, he, he's an illusory character. Uh, yeah, Paul. I yes, yeah, um, and, I, and I go on probably at far greater length on that than anybody would want to know. Uh, he shares a common grandmother seven times removed in his case and. I forget, nine times I'm removed in his case, and 20-odd more times with both, the, uh, with both George Bush and George W. Bush. Uh, <laughs> uh, and his, his parents, uh, his, his mother died two years after he was born. Uh, I should add that all this wasn't found out until 1937. Uh, library in Lemster, Mass, named Florence Wheeler, did this amazing uh, detective work and discovered all this. Um, father was uh, served in the Revolutionary War. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, Johnny was the second, of, John Chapman, the second of two children. The mother died two years later in 1776, uh, two weeks after the declaration had been signed. Um, nobody knows where they lived for the five years after that, probably with, with family in Lemonster. 1781, his father remarried in Longmeadow along the Connecticut border. He went and lived there. His father was never made much of a living as a farmer, but he was a, he was a miracle of, 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 of reproduction. Uh, he and his, uh, and his second wife had 11 children in 
17 years, something like that. And this is when history was moving in the opposite direction. There weren't farm families. Uh, the average size of a family in Massachusetts was, was shrinking dramatically, but not this guy. He was just, he and, he and the second Mrs. Chapman were pushing out children like there was nobody's business. And as you were working with yeah. this book, did you find any guess what drew him to Africa? I, uh, well, um, yes, I think I, I, there's a practical business point to it. Um, in, in, the, in the Ohio particularly, they would sell 100-acre tra tracts of land and require settlers to plant an apple, 50 trees, 50 fruit trees, uh, within two years to prove you weren't a speculator, to prove you weren't a squatter or a speculator. Uh, you weren't going to flip it and move on, I should say. And so there was a business thing, but you know, I, I, in the book, you know, there's also the religious properties of apples. It's hard to talk about apples and not talk about religion, uh, and uh, so I think it served two purposes. Just ask y'all to help me help join me. <laughs>